Mothering Sunday, eh? Fills some people with great joy and other people with great sorrow, doesn't it? Let's read chapter 1. Because the Bible is not anything if it's not really true to life, really expressive of the ups and downs of life. That's one of its great strengths, isn't it? Giving us the truth of God within the context of what life is really like for people. I wonder how many women today are wanting to hide away because they're not mothers, they want to be mothers, but it just hasn't happened for them. It is such a pain. It was true for our daughter. It was a source of great sorrow and pain. On a Sunday like this, she just wanted to hide away. Not now, because she's adopted two children. Again, it's a different manifestation of motherhood, nonetheless. So the story of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go on with her, 
she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And this little brief book of four chapters starts like that. It's a brilliant little story, well told, of real people living real lives in the normal ups and downs of life. And it all goes wrong for Ruth. She starts out as being one who is not part of the people of God. They're the Israelites, the Moabites are not part of the people of God. Her life begins outside the people of God. She doesn't know about Israel's God. The chances are she hasn't been told. She's never seen what it could be like. She's just been living her life hoping against hope that one day she'll get married, because in those days certainly children were a very important part of life. They were your pension. They were the ones who would look after you. And not to have children then as now would be a great pain. So Elimelech, Naomi and their two sons arrive, having walked away from Israel. Shouldn't have done that, but they did it anyway. Down to Moab to live there while the famine in Israel runs its course and they can go back when the grass is green. And literally they've looked across the valley and they can see Moab is greener, so they've gone down there. And they settle down there. And the two sons gain wives. Ruth marries Marlon, we discover later on in the story. So for Ruth, part one of her dreams has come true. She's now married and she can look forward to all the joys of married life, of having children, of nurturing children, as though it's put so eloquently. But it doesn't work out like that. Her father-in-law dies, so she now just has a mother-in-law, and she has moved into this family. And then her husband and his brother both die. So from a time of being looking forward with great expectation to joy and delight, it's all been dashed from her. I wonder what's gone wrong in your life in the past. Because things do go wrong. We all experience things that hurt us, that damage us, that affect us. What they are may be less important than the effect they have on us. Physical pain, emotional trauma, betrayal, loneliness. You can continue that list as long as you want. Most people have had things in their past that have affected them and hurt them, affected them and damaged them. Broken dreams, looking for a bleak future. Here's a thought for you here. We've got to learn from the past because otherwise it will make us bitter and rob us of our faith. We've got to learn from the past. Don't let it make you bitter and rob you of your faith. Ruth will join Naomi and go back to Bethlehem. Where else will she go? She's lost it all in Moab. But she goes back a bitter woman. 
Because somehow she has inherited the promises of God to her people that he would prosper them and bless them. There was a caveat. The caveat was obedience. If they wouldn't obey God, then they would suffer the consequences of that, which is exactly what Elimelech led them into. He was never allowed to leave the land, but he did it anyway. And instead of bringing his family to a place of fruitfulness and prosperity, he brings them to devastation. And Naomi feels that pain and she goes back bitter. She feels she's lost. But Ruth has got a family and something about this family has warmed her heart so much so that she says, your God will be my God from this point on. She's determined not to let the brokenness and betrayal and bleakness of the past affect the future. So when things happen to us, we live in a blame culture. Someone is responsible, find out who it is, and then sue them for all you can get. That'll solve the problem. It never does, of course. It never solves the problem. It doesn't make the hurt go away. In fact, it just increases the bitterness. Because sometimes the blame belongs elsewhere. Maybe it belongs to me and I have to take responsibility for it. Maybe it belongs to other people who've now moved on in life and I can't do anything about it anyway. Maybe it's just one of those things that happens in a broken and dysfunctional world. Like the folk in Mozambique suffering so profoundly. And it's no one's direct responsibility other than the fact that sin lives in the world. So when you think of your past and you think of the things that may have affected you, don't let, it become, let you become bitter and rob you of your faith. The Bible has a word for it. It's called confession and forgiveness. Forgiveness is not one of those things that God says, what else can I make them jump through? What other difficult things can I make them do? Forgiveness is essential if we're to live joy-filled lives. Forgiveness does more for the forgiver than for the forgiven one. So if there are people responsible for it, not only are you responsible for forgiving them, but it is your release from the bitterness and pain that would otherwise hold you back. But having come back, having sorted perhaps in her own mind and heart what's happened before, She's still stuck with the consequences of that, isn't she? She's still a widow. She's still living in a land whose customs and culture she doesn't know very well. But she goes back. In chapter 2, she, the, the book, I can't read it for you, it would take us all the time we would have until coffee. But it's well worth reading this beautiful story. She meets with a guy called Boaz, who has not run away but has stayed in the land. He's not one who deserts the post when it gets hard, but has lived in the land, a man of godliness and righteous character, a man who cares about his employees. He's not married. We know nothing about his family, whether he still has a family, whether he's an orphan, whether he has brothers and sisters galore. We don't know. But he's just presented as a, someone who has an obligation, a care for those he works with. And she comes and gleans in his field. She's able to do that. 
So her life is going to be hard. As a widow, she has no one to speak for her, no one to stand up for her, no one to provide for her. Life is tough anyway, and if you're a widow, it's doubly tough. But her mother-in-law says, go and glean. Well, she in fact invites herself to go and glean, and her mother says, go. Her mother-in-law says, go off and do it. And she finds herself. It says, as it turned out, she finds herself in Boaz's field, as it turns out. It's a unique phrase in the whole Bible. It's meant to draw out attention to the fact that God was at work bringing these two together. And Boaz recognises in verse 12 of chapter 2, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here's the second thing. Don't let the past make you bitter and rob you of your faith. But don't let the present make you grumble and rob you of your contentment. At the moment, we are a grumbling nation. There may be good reason for that, but I'd like to think, I, I suspect that we're more grumblers than not. We're constantly grumbling about the weather, aren't we? It's a constant topic of conversation because it changes so much. But many people in many parts of the world would love the weather we have, wouldn't they? It's temperate climate. So we have to watch it. Grumbling can rob you of your contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This woman has been handed a difficult hand to play, a difficult life, but she goes for it. She gleans. That's hard work. You gather the bits that the reapers have left behind and you gather them up, scraps here, scraps there, and you can see if you can make a living out of it. And that's what's happening. Well, she happens upon a man called Boaz who is generous to a fault. He instructs his reapers Make sure there's plenty for her to glean as well as the others. Make sure you don't touch her. Make sure she's safe in our fields so that she has enough when she goes back. Even when they have lunch in the middle of the day, he invites her to come and sit with her and provides a meal for her that is so lavish that she has half of it she can take back to her mother-in-law later in the day. She's a person who takes hold of life as it has been given to her but has cast herself under the wings of the God of Israel. The one thing about fatherhood and motherhood, which you miss out, of course, if you're not a father or a mother, is this wonderful responsibility that parents willingly accept in large measure to look after another, to provide for another. When my children and now my grandchildren are growing up, I'd hate to see my three-year-old grandson, the youngest one at present, we're waiting for another one to arrive any minute now, but the three-year-old one, I'd hate, wouldn't it be awful if he walked around with a furrowed brow and I said to him, Samuel, what is the matter? And he said, Grandpa, I don't know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. And you feel like saying, it's not your responsibility. You don't have to worry. Someone else will prove to be the provider of the meal. Wouldn't it be awful if little tiny ones walked around with long faces, fretting and worrying? Grandpa, I don't know how I'm going to afford to repair my car when I'm older. What? These are not worries you have to have now. You can trust parents to look after you, by and large. And that's what God wants. He's not just the God of Israel. 
He's the God of all the nations. And he wants all people to come to him. We're talking about, in many services today, natural births of natural children. But in fact, a constant refrain in the New Testament is God of adoption. He adopts us into his family. He chooses to include us in his family. And that's his longing and desire. And this is what this woman has done. She's thrown herself on the mercy of God. It's not going to magically make things better. But she's safe. She's where she belongs. She is loved by God. You are precious, my friend. You are honoured. And you are loved by God. And that's what she's discovering. So don't let the present hand, if you're finding life is difficult, obstacles abound, problems mount up, you don't have enough of this, you don't have enough of that. God is in charge and you have a part to play. So live contentedly with what you have, trusting God for all things. In chapter 3, the story moves on and she's got to know Boaz a little bit, but only in employer, employee kind of way. But her mother-in-law is keen that Ruth should have security because Naomi's not going to live forever and one thing you have responsibility for as a mother is to prepare your children or your children-in-law for a future that is secure. She says, this is what you need to do. Boaz is one of the people we can look to to help us out of our predicament. He's a godly, righteous man and he will do the right thing. Go and make yourself available to him. And as we look forward to the future, it can make us anxious and rob us of hope. That's what's terrifying our nation at the moment, the lack of hope. And people are very anxious and very concerned. But it will be true without Brexit. If we are without God, then we are without hope in the world. But God is a God of hope who puts hope before us. And Boaz stands as one who is in, as it were, the place of God. Because that's the key thing with the people of God, my friends. We as the church of God exist on earth to express the hope of God to people who have no hope. To express the presence of God to the God who is with us. We are with the communities in which we are placed. This is what incarnational ministry is all about. God with us and we being the expression of that. So as we look forward to the future, don't let it make you anxious and rob you of your hope. This woman who has cast herself on the God of Israel can trust people to do the right thing. You see, if you have no hope and you can't trust God, you find it very hard to trust other people. And that is the key thing in the debate about the things that you and I know about. Because no one trusts anybody else, do they? And without that, you can't have a community of people. We need to trust. So as we trust God with our whole lives, we can trust each other. So what worries you about the future? For Ruth, it will be to be on her own for the rest of her life, to have no one to care for her. What will happen? To be seen as a foreigner in a foreign land, to be thrown out. What are your fears? What are your anxieties? Some of them are 
And they're not all unreasonable. Some fears are very reasonable. To fear what fire may do to my hand if I put it in is a very reasonable fear and it's a wise fear. But if the fear I have frustrates and makes it seriously difficult for me to live my life, then it may well be unreasonable. Some fears are specific and we mustn't get them confused with general. So, for example, some people are thieves and some people will have things stolen from them. But, my friends, not everyone is a thief and not everyone has everything stolen. You have to give the general and the specific. But remember this, life is not all there is on earth. We have more yet. So don't let the future make you anxious and rob you of your hope. For God is a God of hope. Trust in him. And Boaz does the right thing. The story of chapter 3 and chapter 4 is of Boaz embracing this woman, opening his arms to him, saying, it sounds as if he's an older man because he compliments her that she's not run after the younger men, presumably those who will be nearer her age. He's an older man. He thinks life has passed him by. He's given up hope of being married, by the sound of it, and he is delighted that she should choose him. But he stands in, as it were, the expression of God's love and acceptance. He draws her in and brings her under the protection of his own name and household. And she will be able to thrive. And chapter 4 tells us, lastly, that they have a son. In fact, they probably have more than one son. But this son they will name Obed. And this is all the story is about. It starts with Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons and ends with Boaz and Ruth and their one son. It's a story about family. But it's a story that happens in the worst possible times of Israelite history. It's set in the time of the Judges. If you were to read Judges, you would think you're reading a contemporary newspaper and it would depress you. But this little story is written in that time when life for people is difficult. But amidst all that difficulty, and amidst all that pain and sickness and sorrow and sinfulness and wretchedness and violence and greed and everything else that shouldn't be part of life. Ruth and Boaz have a son, and his name is Obed. And Obed will become the father of Jesse, and Jesse will become the father of David, who will become the greatest king the Israelites will ever know. One who is described by God himself as a man after my own heart. Somehow Obed has passed on to Jesse his son, the faith of his father and mother. And Jesse, in some way or other, has passed on to his son David the faith of his father, Obed. That there is hope. This little story starts in dire circumstances and ends up as a story of hope. And this is the key thing. Neither Boaz nor Ruth will know that their grandson will become king. To them, it's just a child whom they will nurture and love. So here's the last thing. Our task is to pass on a good inheritance to the next generation so they may continue to live for God. Perhaps the greatest thing you will do in your life is the effect you will have on other people's children. 
If they're your own children, that's a big responsibility. But all of us have connections with other children. And people who are not part of that family can nonetheless have a devastatingly negative effect on children as well as a positive effect. So our task is to pass on a good inheritance to the children so they may live this hope-filled life. Pass on the truth. Live the truth. Pass on the vision. Live the vision. Let the children see in the lives of us hope and a future. God with them. So pray for those who go into the school and speak of God. Not just that their words, but they will bring life and hope to those children. Pray for the families that live around you whose children might drive you nuts. But pray for them. Pray for that big responsibility. It's not easy to be a parent these days when the whole of society is not geared up to support your view, but rather to dismantle it. In this technological age, it's an important thing. So deal with the past. Be content with the future, whatever, with, with the present, whatever God has given you, because God is with you. And don't worry about the future. God has a future. And we have hope for that. So on this Mothering Sunday, pray for mothers, pray for fathers, pray for those children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have adopted us into your family, that you know us through and through, nonetheless chose to open your heart to us and draw us into your forever family. And we thank you that we are the children of God. And on this particular day, as we think, Father, of mothers we may know personally, or mothers that surround us, we, Father, we pray for those who are parents, for those who stand in for the place of parents, for those who stand with parents that you would help us to stand with them and support them and pray for them and encourage them and strengthen them so in their difficult task, but their great task, they may pass on a wonderful inheritance of godly love, of scriptural truth, of spiritual life, of life to the glory of God to those children. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be content with the hand that you have dealt to us today, now. Let us embrace it and enjoy it and live in the good of it. May we not worry about the future that you have in your hands, Lord, but trust you in all things. That your name may be glorified. Amen.